today's reading is John um, chapter 18, verses 33 to 19, 16. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied, your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? retorted Pilate. With this, he went out against, again to the Jews, gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they slapped him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus, but Jesus gave no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Thanks, Meg. Over to you, Tim. Lovely. Uh, thanks, Claire. And thanks, Meg, um, for, for reading. Um, so the title of the talk that I've uh, been asked to give today is uh, Jesus' Encounter with the Politician. Let me just pray for a second. And Father, we just thank you for the amazing verse that we've just, or passage that we've just read, I pray you bless what I say um, and ensure that it brings glory to your name and yours alone. Amen. So, yeah, the assumption drawn by most people is then that you cannot trust politicians. Um, and, uh, you know, dishonesty is thought to be hardwired into the whole 
business of, of what we do. When it comes to reliability, we're scrapping it out in the gutter with estate agents and tabloid journalists to avoid the prize of most dishonest profession. In the age of fake news, of people happy to believe a lie if told by your guy, or to reject the truth if it comes from the other side, it feels like truth has become even rarer than normal, and therefore all the more precious. And the passage that Meg has just read out to us is about a politician and the truth. And sat here, I read it from my Bible, which was printed about 20 years ago. Most of the passage we've just read, however, is on display at the Sackler Library at Oxford University, and it's written on a fragment of manuscript catalogued as Papyrus P90, and it's a bit more than 20 years old. It's 1,900 years old, roughly. It relates to the interrogation, as we've just heard, of Jesus of Nazareth by the governor of the Roman province of Judea, a politician whose name was Pontius Pilate. And the event happened about halfway through Pilate's 10 years in office. He had the top job for about as long as Margaret Thatcher and Tony Blair had theirs. I wonder if either of them will be remembered in 2000 years time. That, that Pilate is remembered today is of course down to the conversation we've just read and which is recorded on that ancient piece of manuscript. The fragment of text, specifically 18 verse 36 to 19 verse 7, uh, is dated to around 100 years after Jesus's ministry. And that means it was written well within the lifetime of those who've been around when the original was written, sometime about AD 90. That tells us that this is a highly credible historical account. It means that what we've just read cannot be legend. There have been 2000 years since these things took place. And of course, things can get lost or twisted through the passage of time. And that's a reason that many people use to dismiss the Bible. This just doesn't wash, though, with the New Testament documents, because some of the copies are even older than Papyrus P90. And here we can see with certainty there were just a few years between these things taking place and this account being written. There wasn't any deep or mysterious passage of time during which the accounts were passed by word of mouth, by generation to generation, moulded and adapted by tellers of the story so that the accounts that we have today have been distorted. No, this was written within one generation and copied within the next, written by eyewitnesses and open to scrutiny by living eyewitnesses. Legend is the one thing this cannot be. So I want us to be clear that what we are reading is an account that the writer is desperate for us to know to be true. And as Meg uh, just wrote or, or read, sorry, and I think it was Claire earlier on mentioned, I should say, in her prayer, um, later on in the Gospel of John, he says that Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. So the author's motive here isn't in doubt, is it? He's written a first-hand eyewitness account because he wants you to accept the evidence that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing in him, you can have life, eternal life. This is a man from the first century speaking direct to you today in March 2021 without distortion and with urgency and clarity. And the question is, will you hear him? Politics is about the pursuit and exercise of power, and it's also about opinions. So as we look at the content of this passage, we're gonna see that it speaks to us about both. First, who is in charge here? Well, Pilate's the governor, 
He's got Caesar above him, but he's otherwise in the supreme role. The Roman Empire is at its height, and Pilate is the empire's man here. So he's in charge, isn't he? Yet Rome didn't tend to obliterate local cultures. They tended not to Romanize, instead to work with a local culture and local beliefs, largely because Rome thought probably quite wisely that this would make the occupied territories a lot easier to manage. And so the religious leaders here in this account are also powerful. They're at the apex of their culture. They set, they interpret religious laws in what is a highly religious society. In theory, Pilate can ignore them. In practice, he just can't. Pilate's lack of complete power here is seen, I think, most obviously in his, in his movements. This account of Jesus' interrogation is full of movement, and it's Pilate doing the moving, not something the truly powerful ever really have to do. They, you have to go to them, not them come to you. It's Passover. The priests will be breaking their laws and defiling themselves ahead of the feast if they went into the Roman palace, so they're outside. Jesus is inside, presumably in a cell. Pilate goes out to the priests, he returns to question Jesus, then he goes back to the priest, then back to Jesus, has him flogged by the soldiers. Then Pilate goes outside again to the priest, then back inside to Jesus, finally outside to the priest before he then hands Jesus over to be crucified. The most powerful man in the country doesn't look all that powerful here, does he? He looks harassed, nervous, fearful. To Jesus, he starts by asking, what have you done? Why do they want you dead? They say you're a king, are you? Jesus replies, my kingdom is not of this world. Pilate doesn't see why Jesus has to die. He doesn't seem guilty of anything worthy of death. So out he goes to plead with the religious leaders. And they're having none of it. They reply, we've got a law that says he must die because he claims to be the son of God. The account then tells us that Pilate was even more afraid. Now, was he afraid because of what the Jewish law says or because of who he was beginning to suspect that Jesus was? I'm sure it was a latter because as Pilate shuttles back to Jesus, he asks a new question and he asks it with an almost detectable tremor. Where do you come from? You just need to read the text to know this was not an inquiry into Jesus's postcode. No, it is so clear that Pilate now is beginning to see that Jesus is not just an innocent man, but something terrifyingly greater. So Pilate is conflicted, disturbed, fearful, desperately trying to get out of having to make this decision. The religious leaders are frantic with determination to get him out of the way, to stop him challenging their status, their comfortable existence, telling them that they are sick and sinful and in need of a saviour. How dare he? They're almost frothing at the mouth with an angry insistence and persistence. He must be killed and he must be killed today. So we ask ourselves, might we be a pilot or a priest? Are we disturbed by Jesus, nervous about making a decision, accepting who he really is? Or are we desperate to shut him up as he lays claim to us? Because if politics is about the exercise of power, we see two powerful groups here whose angst is fueled by their inadequacy just like ours. The chief priests do not have the authority to execute him, no matter what their law says. Yet here the Roman governor seems not to have the courage to turn them down. And so in practice, his power is limited too. The priests want to kill Jesus because they fear him. And Pilate wants to spare Jesus 
because he fears him. And yet the one apparently showing no fear, neither anxious nor angry, is the one who is shortly to be cruelly tortured and killed, which under any other circumstances would make no sense whatsoever. But a closer look at the account tells you that it is not the cultural leaders calling the shots, nor is it the political leader holding the reins. Amongst the confusion, there is no chaos because all of this is planned. Jesus is in complete control. In the Psalms of David and in the prophet Isaiah written 1,700 years earlier, we read of a Messiah, a suffering servant whose hands and feet would be pierced for our transgression. This piercing of hands and feet sounds horrific. It's exactly what would happen to Jesus shortly after this exchange. But it's also curious and intriguing because the Roman, Roman practice of crucifixion wouldn't become familiar in Israel until hundreds of years after David and Isaiah had been inspired to write what they did. They're just two of the dozens of clues that everything that Jesus experienced, God had planned in advance and for a purpose, in which case Jesus was meant to die, to be pierced for your transgressions. In other words, to take your punishment for you that you might go free for one inescapable reason that he loves you. His determination to face the cross was his determination to save you. Not on a whim, for this had been planned deep in eternity and not grudgingly, but with passionate abandon for those he was about to save. Back to the dialogue. Don't you realize I have the power to kill you or set you free? Asks Pilate in desperation. Jesus' reply, stern and ching, would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. The power that the politician and the religious leaders have is given them by God. And in this moment, their power is being directed towards the execution on trumped up charges of the son of God for a clear reason. For you, it's a clear exchange. His life for yours, your sins for his riches. What a swap, what a deal, what a scandal, what a God. Again, remember who wrote this and when they wrote it and why they wrote it and why you can have confidence that this is a true account. Let's not dodge it because we have doubts. So politics is about power and opinions. We looked at power, so let's briefly look at opinions. So we are people of opinions. We're in politics in part because of our opinions. And in this passage, all of our opinions are overshadowed by something desperately unfashionable, the truth. When Pilate asks if Jesus is a king, Jesus replies that his kingdom is not of this world. And Pilate leaps on this. Oh, you are a king then. And Jesus says, you're right in saying I'm a king. I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Well, here we find that truth is objective. There are no competing truths, not your truth and my truth. Pilate's response here is to ask, what is truth? Just before he trudges back out into the heat of the day to have another round with the religious leaders. And when you read this in the text, you can hear Pilate, what is truth? It's not an inquiry, it's rhetorical. He's tired and weary at this. He doesn't want to have to make a decision. And Jesus is saying heavy things in part, he is scared by, and in part he just can't be bothered with. He is irritated with the religious leaders for putting him in this position. And now Jesus is talking about objective truth and it's doing Pilate's head in. You wonder how close Pilate came to believing in Jesus as his saviour, or whether in the years that followed, he might have become a believer. We've no evidence either way. But here we see a man struggling. And I want to suggest to you 
that if you're struggling with this, you should be encouraged. Tim Keller said only the other day, only if God can say things that make you struggle, will you know that you have met a real God and not a figment of your imagination? And that's right, isn't it? If there's a perfect almighty God, he's going to disturb you, unsettle you. You will struggle. There is an objective truth, a singular truth. Jesus is that truth and he invites you to grab hold of it. And in his mercy, he gives you evidence so that you know this is no leap in the dark, no act of blind faith. Here in this passage, it's Passover. That these events happened during the Passover is, is surely not an accident. What was the Passover? Well, it was a time over a thousand years earlier when every household in Egypt saw the death of their firstborn son, except for those who adored the blood of a lamb on their doorpost. A lamb sacrificed for this very purpose. Death passed over those houses and those families were spared because of the death of that lamb. The religious leaders stood outside Pilate's palace. They knew the account of the Passover and they knew it inside out. And the tragic irony was that right in front of them, the ultimate Passover was playing out in the midst of the feast. How can they not have seen? In one sense, we can say that we only see the truth if God opens our eyes. But then also we look at the religious leaders here and say they've got baggage that gets in the way of accepting who Jesus is. They have their identity and they have their status. And both of those are at risk if Jesus is the Lamb of God. It's easy to disbelieve Christianity if you are determined to do so. Jesus Christ's words, his claims about himself, what he come to do, people don't reject them because they're not true. They reject them because they're not convenient. And one of the most inconvenient things is that it's ego shattering. We cannot do anything to save ourselves. Those families passed over and spared in Egypt, well, they weren't assessed beforehand as to whether they were good or bad or religious. They simply needed to demonstrate sufficient faith to follow the instruction to slaughter a lamb and to daub its blood on the doorpost. And just as Jesus' truth leaves us asked to simply trust in the stricken God on the cross who dies for you. No further action required, no ceremony, no test, just trust. Will we do it? In politics, we're encouraged we, to think that we have to strive and vanquish and achieve for power and status. And here we see that this is just rubbish. Maybe Pilate would have lost everything if he trusted in Jesus, but it would have been worth it. What did he have that was worth what Jesus offers? Here we see the almighty king of the universe with nothing to his name, but a crown of thorns and a lacerated back, giving up more than Pilate could ever imagine for one single reason. You. He gave up everything so he could redeem you. That is how much you mean to him. The king who leaves behind his riches and his glory to save a wretch like me. It is subversive. It is revolutionary and it shines a light on the laughable puniness of political power. And yet, of course, Pilate in the end gave in. The priest shouted at him, if you let this man go, you're no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. What outrageous hypocrisy from the priests who hated the Roman occupation, but of course it worked. And Pilate cracked. The temptation to cave into the culture, to take the easy way out and return and turn your back on the truth is massive. Christ is offensive. Christianity is as countercultural today as it was then. Because Jesus tells us that we are not our own. You're not your own judge. You're not your own saviour. This dramatic exchange between the apparently powerful and the actually powerful 
reminds us of our situations, our own lives and our own time. And it reminds us of the choice we also have to make. In the knowledge that we're reading, first-hand eyewitness account and a claim to objective ultimate truth. Like Pilate, we ask, are you the king? What have you done? Where do you come from? And we hear the clear reply from Jesus, I am the king of the universe. I have died for you because I love you. And I am from eternity where I will take you. Unlike any politician, he's all powerful and utterly trustworthy. So let's trust him. Thank you.